Welcome to this episode of Laughing Without Liquor, a woman's guide to living it up without the booze. Join your long-term recovery hosts, Lane Kennedy and Tamar Medford, as they have insightful conversations with others on an alcohol-free journey. We're glad you're here. Now let's dive into this episode. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Lane. Yeah. I am really excited yeah. about our guest today. Uh, yeah. Steve Bisson. I think I said it right. I, I, it warms my heart because first of all, he Mm -hmm. was born in Canada. He was Uh, born in Montreal. So as soon as I found that, I'm like, okay, Lane, yes, we have to have him on the show. I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love what he's doing in terms of therapy. Yep. Real direct, real, like straight to the point, right in there. We need a little bit more. And the (laughs) other point I want to make is that, in the conversation we had with Steve, it's like talking about community and we, to have a therapist talk Mm -hmm. about this. I was Mm -hmm. just the whole, the whole interview warmed my heart. Yeah. He's, he's a hundred percent my people, our people. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation conversation and uh, let us know what you think. All right. Yeah. Let's get into it. Let's roll. Okay. So no, less pressure, more fun. Hold on, please. Tomorrow you have in your spray. I do have I'm still using okay. my old spray. All right. We're gonna roll. We have a new uh, episode today. I'm stoked. We have our friend here, Steve Bisson. Steve Bisson. <laughs> Steve Bisson. That's right. <laughs> And we're going to be talking about breaking free from the pressure to conform strategies for embracing your authentic self in recovery. Uh, I love hanging out with my friend Tamar Medford. And I love hanging out with my friend Lane Kennedy. And today we're hanging out with you, my friend. So thanks for listening. And our guest, Steve Bisson. Steve, (laughs) welcome to the show. I just think that just saying my last name is going to be the whole show at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, I'm so glad that you could make it and so glad that we connected. And I'm looking forward to this conversation around, you know, this, this breaking free from the pressure to conform. You know, there's certain ways to be sober or live in recovery. And I know you have uh, a little story and you have a background around this. So why don't we just jump in there and then we're going to let it roll. Uh, how long do you have? I mean, I, I could tell you how I started. Um, I, I, I joke around that I've been a substance abuse counselor for about 20 years. But if you count my family, which it's is a long time. But if you count my family, it's 47, uh, oh. giving away my age. Um, so, you know, I've had substance abuse around me for all my life. Yeah. And certainly when um, I moved here in 1999 and right before that, I was having a rough time with the drinking, drinking every night, drinking on the job, drinking the whole nine yards. Mm. And I moved to Massachusetts from Montreal. And what I did is I had no friends. I had no family. I had 50 bucks in my pocket, but vodka was 99 cents. Uh-huh. So, you know, I spent what, a lot of time. What with, part of Massachusetts? Um, That was in Natick, Massachusetts, uh, about 30 minutes out of uh, Boston. Okay. So. I have um, friends in Ipswich. Okay. The the little, yeah. And and I uh, had my last drink in Boston. 
So my heart is uh, very fond of that part of the world, for sure. So you drank. Yeah, and I drank, and I had nothing else. And I had my friend Jack Daniels. I had my friend Sam Adams. Mm -hmm. I had my friend uh, Labatt Blue. Um, and everything else I can get my hands on. And at one point, um, I knew it was problematic. Mm -hmm. And I looked at myself in the mirror and said, you got to stop drinking. And I said, let's not drink for a year. And, you know, I was able to do it. Um, People ask me, what was your withdrawal symptoms? I don't know. I don't remember. So probably bad. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I stopped drinking for over a year just because I needed to, because my life was getting out of control. And during that time, I started working on a crisis team in Massachusetts, uh, in the city of Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, So Ipswich is all the way. I had a girlfriend that was near there once, but uh, she's an ex-girlfriend now. So uh, (laughs) I don't go there anymore. Uh, But, uh, you know, it was kind of interesting to learn what we do for alcohol and how we just change our lives for it. And when I started thinking that my only thing in life was like, when's my next drink? Um, I knew it was a problem. And that's all I can think about. And uh, it's a story that I kept out of shame. And, you know, that's substance abuse counts on that or substance uses, I should say, because we don't want to talk about it. And shame keeps us stuck. So at at the end of the day, what happened is I didn't drink for a year. And then I said, let's see if I can do controlled drinking. And I know that's controversial and I get it. Bring but it uh, knock on wood, since I will, I will say that on my bachelor party, I was fed a lot of alcohol. I will say that. That's mm. 2004. Um, but since then, I can't tell you that I drink more than a couple of drinks a month. And I don't even crave it. And sometimes I go a couple of months without drinking. I don't even think about it. And I'm, I know I'm the lucky one. I absolutely know that I'm the lucky one. And it takes a lot of discipline. And I joke around with um, some people, and it's not even a joke. If I know I feel like having more than one or two, I call a friend who's willing to uh, verbally beat me up if I go for anything more than one or two, uh, maybe possibly physical. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that it's never happened. I've never been verbally talked about or or anything else. And what I find fun too is I have a daughter who's 15. I have another daughter who's uh, going on 13. And both of them always say, I never saw you drunk once. You never drank excessively once. And that's a pride, you know, to, they don't know necessarily my struggles in the past with it, but I have mentioned in passing that it has been problematic for me. So I have to control it. And they've seen it in other people and they certainly know that, but they don't know the whole extent of the story. I share it now, I think that it's only been about 10 years that I've openly shared it because I was always concerned. You know, when we work in the mental health field, they tell us, don't tell your clients about your story. Well, yeah. if anything in substance use, you need to share that story so that people can at least feel like you can relate. I get the roll of the eyes when I say I drink only once in a while because they're like, well, I want to do that too. And I'm like, well, I've met two people in this world that was able to do that. I'm being one of them and someone else I met. But ultimately, I don't think that it's something that we need to keep to ourselves. We need to share these stories in order to lift the stigma. And that's how we got to break some barriers. And therapists are humans, just like podcasters are humans and so on and so forth. Once you decide to say that, well, I'm special and I don't need to talk about it, I think you're doomed to repeat the same crappy behavior you used to do. Mm 
that's just my two cents on that. I love it. Tamar. Uh, yeah, I like want to mention something. Let's get in there. Because thank you, Steve, for sharing that. And thank you for being a therapist who shares the fact that you did have a problem with alcohol. Because I, my first uh, therapist when I got sober, she actually shared that with me as well. And that allowed me to realize, okay, this person gets me. This person understands what I've been through because I've also been through therapy when I was drinking, but those people, they couldn't relate to it because they, they hadn't dealt with any form of addiction in the past. And I actually have a really good friend of mine right now who just became, um, got her master's in counseling. And she also chooses to share that because it allows, I, I feel a better connection between the client and the therapist, mm -hmm. right? More to be more open. And isn't that what we want is for people to be honest and actually start to get to the root of everything. I think the days of uh, the therapist with a suit and tie sitting at the end of the couch telling you that they know everything are getting close to being over. Is there still that style? Is there a place for it? Sure, I'll, I'll give it that, give that just because there's a place for just about everything in life. But a large majority of therapists are now recognizing talking about your substance use issues or your own struggles with mental health without making it about you, which is key in my job, is that if you make it about you, then that's not healthy to share that with your clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you make it about the client and it's going to be helpful, I think I'm seeing more and more therapists do that because I don't think we want a therapist that's a robot that's not been there, not done that, doesn't have a T-shirt, is blank. And I just don't think that that's right. And you, this is my studio in my house and you see all the stuff in the back, but that's nothing compared to my office, which probably has like 50 to 60 posters, anything from music to movies to sayings to Montreal Canadian stuff, New England Patriots stuff, and it's all over the place. And people are like, I feel like I'm walking into a person's personality and I know who they are by walking in and having a little bit of their personality on the wall. Is it for everyone? I guess it's not. But for me, I think that that's what created a great bond. And when people talk about substance use in particular, they can open up and talk about it. Because when I say, oh, yeah, I've had my own struggles, and they clearly see that I'm not making a story up, and I don't make it about me, I think that that's what really helps people talk about their true difficulties. Because I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I was sharing my own difficulties and waking up, with an empty bottle of Jack Daniels on my next to me on the floor, not knowing how the hell I got there. And if someone came to the house or and the TV's on and I'm like, when did I start watching today? Um, it, I mean, that's confusing and that's real stuff and that you can't make that stuff up. It's all reality. And I think people need reality nowadays. So much, so much. And your practice is called straight to the point, right? Yes. So uh, I think that's, like you said, walking into your office, you probably just say, here it is, this is what we're gonna do. And I'm here to support you and help you the best I can. And you know, one of the things that you brought up is that sobriety, there's no cookie cutter you know, way to recovery. And I feel the same way. I, I used to think that it was, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 step path was the way. And you know, the longer that I've stayed sober, I've seen several people find other paths to stopping that alcoholic substance abuse disorder. And I'm fascinating. So how do you kind of untangle that and support people around finding their way? 
Well, the first thing that I talk about is how AA is a great program. It is not the only program. And you can go to CA, you can go to GA, you can go to all of these A's at the end. I'm not trying to discriminate. That's the ones I remember. They're all fantastic, but they may not be for everyone. Because some people may be turned off by the rigidity of the attendance, for example. Or they might be very upset in regards to, uh, you know, I don't think that it is a religious component anymore. I haven't been to an AA meeting face-to-face in a couple of years since the pandemic. But I think that when people hear higher power, they hear God and, oh, I don't want to deal with God. It's not really that, but okay, I'll let you live with that. And I talk about how, you know, there's smart recovery. That is a great program that's based on cognitive behavioral. It doesn't do more of the past. It stays in the middle. Like, and what can you do today? And I think that that's a good way of doing it. I also think that therapy, whether it's group or individual, can be beneficial based upon working on some cognitive distortions that people may have, you know, using alcohol as a reward system, for example, or I'm, I deserve this or what have you, and trying to change the mentality and challenging those notions. And ultimately, I also share this story with everyone about substance use, and I, th- I, I, I think that I did with someone not too long ago, is that I worked in a parole office, someone was having trouble staying sober, five or six DUIs, gets out on parole, drinks mm-hmm. again. And they look at me in, in good parole fashion. They're like, can you keep him sober for 15 days, Steve? I'm like, I don't know if I can keep him sober, but I certainly will try. And I remember him sitting there like head tilted. And he mm-hmm. looked at my desk and he says, what's that? I said, that's Buddha. I was like, it's a little wooden Buddha head on my desk. Yeah. Explain a little bit about Buddhism to him. He's like, can I have it? I said, is it going to keep you sober? He's like, yeah. And again, I don't know what happened post parole but for the 15 days he never had stayed sober more than seven days in the community so 15 days is significantly better so if a wooden buddha works it works ultimately it's looking for what people will really respond to and not you know say no you need to go to AA 90 and 90 or here's the 12 steps don't you know because you know I, I tell people like nothing like going to the you know the to me the seven eight step and all that stuff can be very daunting for a whole lot of people and that can be where people turn off well if you turn off there how about smart recovery how about other ways of handling it but i think that if we think about sobriety as just a one thing we're 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 disserving our people in my opinion yeah I absolutely agree with you 100%. You know, people have this old ideas around Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 steps, right? It's a male-dominated white society. And I would say, you know what, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of meetings. I mean, that's what we found out in the pandemic. And, you know, the 12 steps are based on a set of spiritual principles, Buddhism, right? And we find these principles, they're universal principles. And so... I always tell somebody to eliminate the people because it's the personalities that are in conflict with other personalities. You know, when you enter that room of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're up against like seeing, you know, those 12 steps and the word God and then the people. And that's probably going to hit some nerves. But if you just take the pure principles, hope, love, kindness, right? There's kind of a transition. There's kind of something that can happen, but people are, you know, they're drunk still when they get there and it takes time to understand and unravel that. There's another program that I really, really appreciate. I don't know if you're familiar with it, 
but it's called She Recovers. Are you familiar with She Recovers? I've heard of it. I'm not familiar with it. I'm not going to pretend I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this organization came on the radar pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, they've just been hustling, uh, coming together, meeting up. Similar in that sense, it's a community. And it is female focus or those who identify as female. And they, you know, they talk about the trauma. They just like unleash. And they really believe that, you know, we can recover from anything, right? They, together. So that's another really wonderful program where they're kind of doing it a little bit differently. They're, they're taking the, you know, the secrets and putting them right there in the middle of the room. Uh, and they're more, I would say sometimes they're more flexible around some subject matter. And I, I think that's where I want to go to now is like, you know, is there a hard line of like, of substance use, you know, addiction around drugs and just say, you know, the guy who's drinking every day and how it disturbs or how does it affect their mental health? How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I talk about someone once said, and I like the She Recovers principles because sometimes having women with women, because like you said, sometimes AA can be a male-dominated, white male-dominated mm -hmm. mm -hmm. program, and it could also be very much uh, for, sorry if, if it sounds vulgar, a meat market for some. Go ahead. Um, yes. No, I, I've experienced that. I know. Definitely. Oh, here's a new woman. Doom, 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 like sharks, yeah. essentially. Oh, God. Um, oh. So I and, think but that, not all, but not no, all. No, no, no. But not all. Just like, <laughs> just like some programs will let you have your whatever medication that helps you, and other people will say you're yeah. chewing your, your, your drug. Um, yeah, I think that yeah. for me, I, I think as someone sent this to me, trauma is the dr gateway drug. In yeah. my career, I've sent clues to 10,000 people. And out mm -hmm. of 10,000 people, I can only mention, I can think of one person that was just a, someone who used substances, was alcohol in this case, and it's just substance, nothing else. I couldn't find anything else. It's, but, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. But ultimately, yeah. I think that trauma is the gateway drug or like depression can be a gateway drug. I had clients who had schizophrenia who needed to calm the voices and they turned to drugs or alcohol. And to me, um, heroin and fentanyl and methamphetamines and cocaine and marijuana, even though some of them are, quote, not physically addictive, are still the word addictive is in there. So psychological addiction is still addiction to me. I tend to talk about what people not only, you know, give someone six months to recover from sobriety or getting in sobriety and recovery, because those are two different things. And I can go on and on about that too. But then you kind of look at the mental health issue behind it because the first six months, your brain is like, just, you know, stew. You, there's nothing, you know, it's hard to make sense. I've had people who come in who, you know, they almost seem like they're hearing things because of their sobriety or they're sleeping and they appear depressed. And then after six months, lo and behold, there's different things that happen. I say six months, it could be four, it could be eight, just a guideline. Yeah, no, I always, you know, when I was first getting sober, there was that saying, uh, you know, don't kill yourself in the first six months, you'd be killing the wrong person because you, you know, the six months to a year, you just, you're, you're kind of out of it, right? You're still, you're trying to, the brain's starting to come back online and it's allowing that space to say, oh my God, I have been really depressed or I did, you know, go through some traumatic 
events when I was young and I never addressed those things. So how do we, yeah, how do we address those issues? Right? Because I think there's people, there's so much shame that we carry around these issues that we just don't even want to talk about them. How do we bring them out into the light, Steve? Well, let's start with my theory about a, any type of addiction. So you can go to the APA and you will not find what I just said or any other system. Mm-hmm. But from my, my perspective, we are all addicted to something. So never shame someone for being addicted because if you take away hockey, baseball, or something like that from some people, that will be causing withdrawal symptoms for a long period of time. And the idealization, and what are they missing, and so on and so forth. Sounds like addiction to you, because it is. Um, So I think that if you start by lifting the shame by saying we're all addicted to something, I think that's a great way to start. And yeah, you can talk about the problematic ones, but I hear people like, well, I work out. That's great, until you injure yourself. And that can be problematic, too, if you do that in excessive ways. So let's lift the shame by showing that we're all addicted to something. You know, to a certain extent, I love doing podcasts. Am I addicted to podcasting? I guess a little bit. Um, It's healthy. I can withdraw. If I don't do it for a while, I'm fine. But ultimately, it's like making that normal. And then when I worked with, uh, this is one of my favorite stories in my private practice, a woman came to me one month removed from opioid addiction and her mom and dad came to session. She was older. She's not uh, underage, but she, they wanted to come and talk to me Well, she's been sleeping all day. I'm like, yeah, get used to it. And no, no, that's not how it works. She's got to go to work. She's got to do it. No, 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 no. Get used to it and give me time. And what they would do too, is they, what did you talk to Steve about in therapy? And then she would kick in the shame. And I had to tell her, look, even if we talk about the weather, I just don't care. Um, I want you to just come in and make it a regular thing for you. She didn't want to do AA. She didn't want to do any of the group stuff, which is fine. And, you know, she's the only person I've ever had in my career. First time in recovery. She's been sober since. We're going on six years this month, actually, in May. Um And we keep on working together and she knows that shame and the trauma. And then she always laughs like, you're the only one who put up with me being tired. And I'm like, I didn't put up with anything. It was normal that you were like that. And she's like, yeah, no one else normalized that for me. And I think that we need to change the way medical systems work also. You know, I think that that's my biggest beef. If you tell me what we need to work on, Um, I can give you... um, any of the meds to that keeps you from withdrawing from opioids, it's not going to fix itself even if you take it for six months to a year. You need to do the treatment behind it, and the treatment's sloppy and it's difficult. Not because I'm a bad therapist or any other therapist or counselor or peer support, because peer support's so important in my opinion, also in recovery. You know, um, it's because it's hard. Your brain is, doesn't even know left from right sometimes. And learning to not have that medical instant gratification fix things. And the example that I give to a whole lot of people in my life and in my clients, I say, if you break your arm, how long did it take you to break your arm? One second, two seconds maybe, and you're in a, you're in a cast for what, six to eight weeks? Well, if you've been using substances for 10, 15, 20 years, and I'm just exaggerating to make a point, you're not going to fix that in six months. It just doesn't work that way. 
And so we give the medical leeway, but we don't give the mental health substance use leeway. And we need to start looking at it in the same ways. And guess what? When you break your arm, you might hit it after three years and go, ooh, it still hurts. Yeah, no kidding, because it was broken. Oh, you know what I want to use? Oh, you're going to relapse. Whoa, 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 whoa. I just expressed how I'm feeling. Can you help me with that? I think that we need to just lift that this is going to be like, oh, you're good after six months. I see it too often that people take it for granted, like, oh, they've been sober for two months, they're good. No, that's when the hard stuff starts. And it's not done till a long time after that. And so we need to just think about it that way instead of seeing one day we're going to take mental health substance use or any type of addiction and we're going to treat it like any physical health issue. And then we're going to have people woken up. And yes, I'm, I said woken, please sue me. Um, I, I just think that we just need to wake up people for that. But it's, it's, it's taking me, it's taking these podcasts like you guys are doing and having a lot of people continuing to give that message. It's not going to be an overnight success, but we'll get there. Okay, so I, there's a bunch of stuff there that you said that and, and some things passed. First of all, I love that you mentioned that everybody's addicted to something because oftentimes we've had listeners write into us and saying, you know what, I'm not addicted to alcohol or drugs, but after listening to your show, I can actually now, I'm more aware of some of the stuff I might be addicted to. And that's why, you know, I love not just necessarily talking about alcohol because it goes so much farther than that so thank you for mentioning that because i think you know on these kinds of shows a lot of people can relate regardless and you know um lane you mentioned it when you talked about she recovers and steve you had mentioned it in smart recovery and of course in alcoholics anonymous i think there's that accountability and that community that is the most important thing and then you know, you working with this client and she's now six years sober, there is that community, there's that accountability. And I think that's a massive part of getting sober and starting to heal the trauma that one might face or, you know, whatever's going on in the root. But I just want to mention, and, and for yourself as well, right? You said, as soon as you get to the point where you start feeling like you want to drink more, you reach out to a friend that's going to give you that kind of hard knock and truth. And I, I really believe that, you know, that is a, a good place to start to get sober. Wouldn't you agree? I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, the, the, the thing that I explained is that you can have the best meds in the world. You can have the best therapists in the world. You can have the best exit, whatever best. If you don't have good circle of people who support you, it does not matter. Um, recently I, I coach a soccer, uh, young girls, my daughter's 12 and they're thir 12, 13, 14 and something happened in their school. Um, and a couple of people contacted me and said, let's cancel practice. I said, no, that's why we're having practice. And so I got all the girls together. It was pouring rain for the practice and the girls had the greatest time in the world and they're all much better because they were able to talk about it at one point they're like can we just go for a walk and like go i didn't make it like a soccer practice per se i just let it more being a community uh, support system 
And, you know, since then I've had a few, a few emails from the parents saying that was brilliant. They're so much better. And I'm like, yeah, it's about community. Isolation is our worst enemy. That's what substance use does. That's what mental health issues do. That's what even physiological issues do. You know, you're, you're, you're feeling dizzy because maybe your blood sugar is off, but you don't want to tell anyone. No, you need to tell someone. You need someone who's going to help you. And if you think about the protective factors of any anything that you can think of, I just went to a training on this. It was an immunity, uh, neurological, psychological, and physiological. I can't remember. There's a word for it. And all it came down to is that you increase by about 90% your success if you are in a community of any kind, or at least one or two people you can count on or can talk to. And I think that that's key to any type of, we talk about sobriety and recovery, two different things. But nonetheless, I think that that's what it is. I, I mean, I, I got to be able to go and say, hey, hey, listen, Elaine, uh, I got to talk to you because I'm, you know, I'm really wanting to uh, drink. I had no one left. I know you don't know me well, but I just need someone to talk to. And 99% of the people I know will support you even if they, quote, don't know you well because they know what you're going through. And if they don't, they can relate it in different ways. So community is essential, in my opinion. And there is studies that belong but that back me up on this, but ultimately that's what we need. And I think that's why AA is so successful. That's why She Recovers is so successful. We can talk about a lot of these groups, but you can never recover of any time physical, mental, substance use alone. No one does it alone. And I kind of remind people of that. So spot on. I am like a community junkie, 100%. You want to talk just, about it? Just, <laughs> just give me more community. I thrive. I honestly, I thrive. And when I was first, you know, getting involved with recovery, I was like, no, I don't want to. It's too scary. People. But now I'm like, give me more I just, yeah, we had, we just had a field trip down to Venice with a group of women who are in recovery and we had the best time. I just hanging out, you know, playing cards for humanity, cooking together. <laughs> uh, just, it was fantastic laughing, like peeing myself because I was laughing so hard, you know, just, it's good. it is one of the, yeah, one of the strategies that I use a hundred percent, uh, I want to get into some other strategies that you might have. So we have community, uh, we have the recovery groups, we have working with a good therapist. Uh, anything else that you can share that might support somebody's journey? And you know, as much this kind of more authentic self. I think that what I've learned a long time ago, and this is one of my prides too, is that if you listen to me here, and then you go to mm -hmm another podcast I might have done, or if you meet me on the street, I, I'm not really that different. Might swear a little more or less, depending mm -hmm. on the mixed bag of people I'm with. Uh, but ultimately, I'm the same person, authenticity and just being yourself. And for me, I've learned that when I'm having a hard time, you know, I've learned that the question, how are you? Don't ask me the question if you don't want a straight up answer. Because it's too easy, and I think we, we'll say westernized culture, particularly I found it when I moved here in America. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. No, I'm not doing good because of X, Y, Z. And always be honest about that. It doesn't have to be like a you know 40-minute uh, conversation, but it could be like, hey, how are you? Ah, no, it's Monday. Uh, I'm trying to catch up everything here. Sometimes it's a little tiresome, but I'm doing good. How about you? 
being honest about how you're doing is actually very important because then that gives that reciprocity. My clients actually mm-hmm. do that, and my friends do that too. Because sometimes my my uh, my clients will ask me, "How are you doing?" Like I came back from vacation last week. I'm like. I truly don't want to be here, not because of you. I just don't want to be here because vacation. But hey, mm-hmm. otherwise I'm good. How are you? And they start talking and they laugh. But that authenticity means a lot. I think that that really, really helps. And just being yourself is, you know, I can't fake me. I wish I could, but I just can't fake me. So the guy you see me here is the same guy you're going to see anywhere else. And um, my, my Quebec friends who where I speak in French, they're like, it's like hearing you, like, I know you, you're speaking in English, but that's you. And not changing yourself per situation. Of course, I'll be a little more, uh, if, you know, when I'm with my soccer girls, I don't swear like a sailor. Um, and I don't make references they won't get. You know, I don't say, oh, you know, that's like uh, Johnny Carson on uh, Tonight Show. Who? Yeah, forget. Um, you know, you you adapt, you adapt to certain things, but that doesn't change your authenticity and who you are. And I, mm-hmm. I I really think that that's important. And also make sure that you know that people also may be struggling with being authentic, and you don't need to force them. You don't need to tell them, no, no, no. Tell me how you really feel. Maybe they're not comfortable. Eventually, they'll feel comfortable because you let them feel whatever the hell they wanted to feel. So. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Staying the same person, you know, like from from relationship to relationship, from room to room, uh, showing up, it's, it's taken me a long time, you know, just to be comfortable with myself. And I think there's this, um, I don't know, you kind of grow into yourself. It just takes time to kind of grow into yourself, but I think it's really great to have someone give you permission to be yourself. Right, so working with a therapist, getting a coach, getting in a community where others reflect back to you who you are. Oh, so good. Everybody needs it now. Steve, I have loved this conversation. I, you know, I could hang out with you for hours probably because you're my people, because you're real. I love real people. I just good. love real people. Me too. Yeah, uh, so I just want to say thank you uh, for all the time that you've given us today. And I know that we're going to be sharing this out and letting everybody find you. Uh, but is there something in particular that you want them to go read or is there somewhere you want them to go listen to or tell well, us, you know, please? Part, part of the Now What Society is also about getting out of your comfort zone. So I've wor- written a book called Finding Your Way Through Therapy, who's led me towards a podcast called Finding Your Way Through Therapy. And I have my you can find those on any podcast and you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Nobles and all that for my book. And for me, if you want to reach me, you can always uh, reach me through the direct messages. I'm under, I think all my social media is now real Steve Biso, or as I like to say, real Steve Biso, just to make it sound French a little bit. Um, and you can go find me on my, my social medias. There's something on substance abuse, uh, spirituality, trauma, and also me trying to do selfies. Uh, and if you don't know where that comes from, go check out my social media because that absolutely is the truth. Uh, but yeah, that's, and, and ultimately just people who can join me in like getting this world to accept mental health and substance abuse at the same level as physical health, we will be friends. Mm-hmm. I am a hundred percent sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if you just contact me and say, Hey, you're my people, as you said, I'm going to be your peeps. My people, Steve, thanks so much for hanging out with us tomorrow. It's so good. I have to jump. Thanks for hanging out. <laughs> Always you. good time. Thanks Lane. Thanks Steve. Thank you.
Oh my God. You know what I love? What? I love when the dogs just freak out and there's people at my door and, you know, we're in podcast land and we can just stop and I lose my train of thought, but we're talking to Steve and he knows exactly where I left off. Because mm-hmm. he's a therapist. It. Because he's a therapist, dude. Um, wow. That was a great chat. I was on board with that. So great. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're recording in real life. I now have three dogs here. And so now I get while we're Mm -hmm. in the middle of a guest. Um, So I hope you got lots of golden nuggets in this episode, because I know I did. I Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Thanks for hanging out tomorrow. (laughs) It's been a pleasure, Lane. See you next time. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Laughing Without Liquor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Living in recovery can be a blast, and we are glad you're laughing without the liquor with us. We hope you'll join us again in the next episode. Until then, take care.